We've got a very serious story today. We're back from the lockdown conditions, doing regular podcasts now in the studio, thank goodness. We just had enough to carry us through, doing our Monday night premieres. And there's been a lot of interest expressed since we've researched the Epstein case about that being linked to the occult and SRA. We've had Wilfred Wong on the channel. He was very well received. We've had John Wedger on twice. All those podcasts are in the true crime playlist in the description box below this video. And I recently watched John Wedger interview Jeanette. So thank you for coming on, Jeanette. Before we get to your story then, you just want to give us a little bit about your background, where you grew up and you know yeah. what, what your occupation is. Yeah, so I'm single mummy at the moment, um, actually just coming through some quite serious illness. So that's been sort of oh, taking dear. up the last few years, but that's all working out in the right direction. So my background now is I'm from southwest London. I spent my first 10 years there. I spent the next 10 years in, well, maybe more than that, actually, my sort of adult, young adult life in West London. I now live in Surrey with my two children. Um, yeah. So, so you've got lots of um, countryside and squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of countryside, yeah, which is lovely. And was growing up, were you a happy child? No, absolutely not. And why was that? Because I was born into a family that um, were a cult operating with satanic ritual abuse and I was born into being a victim of that from birth really from birth yeah so let's go back in time then in your child's mind when did you first I mean if you're born into something perhaps you wouldn't yeah. realize it was wrong you would think this is how the world is yeah how did you start to realize what was going on Oh, gosh, I didn't for a very, very long time. I completely believed that this was what life was. This was normal. I believed that that was everywhere. And um, I didn't know there was anything different in any way, shape or form. Um, I started noticing maybe um, as I got older, you know, maybe around ages of nine or ten, I started to notice that, maybe other people's family lives were different and I started to become very observant of that um but yeah of course as I got older and um what I what I think dawned on me was I recognized there was something wrong with me you know um with how I developed emotionally and the fear that I lived in every day um so I did, I did know, and I think also there were moments during the, you know, the really horrific times um, where I was being held captive by these people, um, where I just, there was always something, a little light somewhere in me that was telling me this was wrong. Um, but, you know, intellectually, if you like, I had no idea that, that this was um, not normal. So we've got approximately two hours, so I want to go over this very slowly then. Mm. What's the first thing you remember? Oh, gosh, okay. My first ever memory, now I've recovered all my memories because I did suppress them for 
chunk of time. My first ever memory now when I look back is of my me being a very small I say toddler, but it might have even been a little bit younger than that. I was laid down on something. I don't even know what it was, but I was in the family home. My mother and father were stood either side of me. My mother was um, taking off my clothes and my father was um, sexually abusing me whilst ranting. I just remember that rage. I always remember his face when I was, you know, very little like that because he was always filled with rage. And it was right from then, really, that the words started of, you know, that it was my fault. I had to have this happen to me because I was born a girl, because I deserved the punishment. Um, so, yeah, that that's my first ever memory. So it's quite young. So did your father have an anger problem and he channeled that energy then into abusing you? Um, I would say my father was taught maybe to put rage into those situations because it was part of, part of satanic ritual abuse is to keep instilling that fear so I think because it was his father my grandfather that ran the show I think this was sort of maybe something he just learned to do uh, I'm sure he did have anger issues well I know he did have anger issues but I don't think it was just about that so this was generational yes when you say that your grandfather was running the show what yeah. do you mean by that so my grandfather was the head of this cult. Did the cult have a name or anything? Not that I know of, um, not that I remember. So he was definitely the top dog, the, you know, the man in charge that, that everybody obeyed and wouldn't dare disobey. So what did he pass down to your father? I think he passed down how to abuse in the format they used. Um, I think he passed down how to sacrifice babies and children, how to torture, how to sexually abuse in the home, how to do the um, regular home rituals, which were being like drowning rituals in the bath. I think he passed down everything, actually, of how to do everything. Okay, so you've described the first incident of abuse that you remember. What did it escalate into after that? So that abuse um, continued in the home. There would be scenarios that were quite regular. So a regular thing would be my father would come to my bedroom um, when I was in bed and hold a pillow over my face until I was suffocating. Um, and what would happen is I would literally brought to the brink of, you know, not being able to breathe and to stay alive. And then what would happen is my body would lose control, so I would wet the bed. Then what he would do is scoop me up out of the bed, shout down to my mum, oh, she's wet the bed again, I'm taking her into my room. My mum would come upstairs and... Um, 
my father would sexually abuse me in their bed and then roll over and have sex with my mum. Oh, God. Yeah. And how old were you approximately? So this would have begun from, I mean, easily three years old, (sighs) not before. So that was the abuse in the home. But the satanic way is, well, it was in my family cult, from the age of three, you get sold outside. Which means what exactly? It means that I was then sold into um, the paedophile ring itself for ritual abuse. But also... um, it's more, it, it's very much about making money. So my father would make money. So from the age of three, you're sold. Um, and you would be taken to whatever venue, wherever, whether that's 20 people and they're waiting to abuse you or two people, it's all um, money making. So that was the home situation. I spoke to a guy recently, Nathaniel Harris, He's an occultist, and he campaigned against some people who did some horrific things, similar to what you're describing. And he said that they do make money from it. It's it's a big money thing. Mm. And also they video it and sell mm. the videos on Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did, did you know about that component? Yeah, I was a victim of that component. So my grandfather's flat was set up for that. So that was set up for child torture, that was filmed, so video, photos, um, various um, abusers would be invited to this scenario as well. Um, so, yeah, the, the child porn side and, and the sort of selling this kind of abuse was, you know, a very regular thing as well. So you mentioned that it went to the ritual level could you detail a ritual that you remember that they put you in? Oh, my gosh, I can detail many, many rituals. So I would say um, let's go for two typical scenarios. If you were take, if I was taken to a house, we would arrive, me and my parents, my mum and dad, and there would already be a lot of people there just just stood around chatting and drinking and socializing my mum would take me into the allocated room each house had an allocated room for rituals that were set up Um, she would strip me naked and leave me in there now what would be happening while she was doing this is my dad would be taking everyone's money then everyone would come in there would be a circle formed around me there would always be a leader of that um, particular ritual someone that would be in like different robes Um, The other people would be either in robes themselves or naked. Um, So they would form a circle around me. The the person in charge, I don't know what these people, what they call it. I've I've never wanted to learn any of that. Like the high priest or something. Yeah, exactly, all that stuff. Um, He would or she would pass round a cup of blood and it would go round the circle um, anticlockwise. And then when they gave the okay, each person would take in turns to come over to me, abuse me in whichever way they wanted to, 
step back and then the next person would come forward. So this could be 10, 20 people in this circle. So by the end of that ritual, um, that would also include lots of chanting and um, swaying and, you know, really horrible stuff as well. So I'm sure as you can imagine, by the end of that, I would just be a little broken body on the floor, saturated in everything. Um, my mother would then come in and just mop me up with a towel, get me dressed. I would always be aware of hearing my father check that everyone had paid him and then we'd, I'd be taken home. So that was a ritual typically that would go from home to a house. So you, men you mentioned the passing around of the blood then. Was there animal sacrifice before they did what they did to you? Honestly, the only sacrifices I ever saw and knew that they were taking blood from were babies and children. How old were you when you saw them doing that? So my grandfather um, ran a farm where all this took place, the sacrificing. And so I was taken to that farm probably, yeah, maybe from three. So I'd say the years of three to nine, I witnessed multiple murders of children and babies and sacrifices. And they were who were the murders performed by? Um, the grandfather and various other cult members, really, but the kind of higher-up ones. And those murders were committed in a sacrificial way, a satanic uh, worship way? Yeah, yeah. Could you describe the, the methods by which the, the, the kids were killed? So... Sorry, this is a hard one for me. I can imagine. Um, okay, I'm going to try and remain very matter-of-fact. Okay. So one of them would be a baby would be laid out on a concrete slab and there were three different things that I can remember clearly. They, 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 did, they cut here across the throat, which would bleed a lot. They cut the throat itself and then they would cut the torso. There would also be times where they would cut off limbs. I saw children have their tongues cut out to silence them before a ritual. Um, so on the actual concrete slab, that's really how they would kill. There was another part in the farm which had a barn with meat hooks in and children were put on the meat hooks and cut from there to there. And then they would collect the blood in a bucket and the innards and everything. So there was many ways of, of gathering the blood that they would drink. So this is like Moore's murders level of atrocities and then some. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> So do you think that they did this with you watching it to put fear in you that this could happen to you if you like exposed them or something like that? Why why would they let you watch it? Well, I think they let me watch it. A, I was part of it in the way of I would also be abused in these situations, you know, and used as, um, you know, ritual. But obviously I was never murdered, but... Um, I think I saw these things 
because they didn't care less whether I saw them or not. But yes, it was always fear in being instilled, you know, always being told, if you speak, this is what will happen to you. And that was pointed out to me in many, many forms on that farm, whether it's whilst they're hanging bodies on meat hooks and my grandfather's saying, if you speak, this is what will happen to you. There was a mass grave where bodies were put. He would hang me over it and say, this is where you'll end up if you speak. So, yeah, all all the time that went on of this is what will happen to you if you speak up. Approximately what decade was that? 70s. 70s. So kids go missing all the time. And uh, I remember one trip to America, I went to the post office and the whole wall was just covered in pictures of missing kids. Where do you think that these kids were sourced mm. from? Yeah. There was there were what I called the cult kids, which was me and others who were belonged to the families. So we were used on the farm all the time for torture and rituals. Then there were abducted children. And I always knew when it was an abducted child because they would arrive terrified and, and crying and screaming. You know, we were silent. We we didn't make noise. We knew that was, you know, you didn't do that because the punishment was off the scale. So an abducted child would arrive at the farm and um, be in, you know, a real state. But also you could see the difference. I could always see the difference. We looked like yeah, the epitome of depravity, really. These children were healthy, well-fed, you know, n- what I call normal-looking, loved children. So, yeah, abductions were constant. It was a flow. So did they prey on care home kids? I've seen a pattern of that because some of these care homes just prostitute them out and just don't care about them one bit. What I've learned of late since I've started to look outside of my own story, which ties in with what I used to see, is that care homes would load children into minibuses and just ship them and they never returned. Now, those minibuses used to turn up at the farm. So, yes, I would say yes to that. Um, But there were contacts everywhere. I mean, there was a local hospital where rituals were done in a morgue and their children would be brought down from the hospital. How did they get rid of the bodies? I mean, on the farm, there was, I used to... It used to be called the well, but it was just a whole big, big hole in the ground. So the little bodies were thrown in there, the babies. I also know that intermittently those bodies were taken out and, and burnt. They would have a big burning thing. Um, there were woods on the outside of the farm. There is our woods on the outside of the farm. A lot of bodies were taken in there, the bigger bodies. And just, I don't know, I assume buried, um, not just left. Um, yeah, there was quite a few ways. I mean, I remember, even remember where we lived in southwest London. Um, it, was a, it was a small council estate and there was like an incinerator thing where the bins were. And I remember my grandfather coming into the house and with a duffel bag thing, 
making me look inside it and it was a dead baby and then making me follow him to the incinerator and seeing it thrown in there. So I think there was numerous avenues for getting rid of bodies. So the farm was southwest of London? The farm was in Surrey. I was in Surrey. Good grief. So not so far from here. Not so far from here. James, should we go and film at the farm? See if we can find any anything untoward? Oh, you would. <sighs> um, I've been grief. back. You've been back? Yeah, a few times. All right, we'll get, we'll yeah. get to that. So did you ever feel that your life was about to end during these situations? All the time. Could you describe some of them? So there were so many times where I I did literally nearly die. So I think there were two scenarios for me where I would lay thinking I'm dying, and that would be on the farm after I'd been used in a ritual um, I had what was sort of made to measure my own coffin. So my grandfather had literally measured me, made a coffin, and after the ritual, again, saturated in everything, broken little body, I would have been put into the coffin, covered over just by, like, newspaper and whatever the lid was, I don't know, um, and put into the ground. So I was buried alive left there I just always remember coming out waking up and it was daylight so I don't know how long or whatever I remember the terror I used to feel going down into the ground and those times I used to think I'm, I'm gonna die I'm dying you know I felt this blackness around me um so I always felt like I was gonna die there I always felt like I was going to die being tortured by my grandfather because so much of the torture was based around choking and being stopped to breathe and masks being put over your like suffocations. So I was brought to the brink, I think, regularly. Um, yeah, there were also on the farm like underground tunnels with like, cells in there. And I think the times I've spent in there... I didn't ever know when someone would come back and get me. So I, there again, I felt like, you know, I could die easily. You mentioned earlier about drowning torture. Can you describe what they did? So for me, the drowning torture at home was my father would run a bath, put me in it again in this rage state, um, make me lay literally throw me lay me down and he'd put his hand over my face and just keep ducking me in and out in and out in and out um and then after so much of that he would just hold me under i i don't i, I just always remembered that sort of blacking out feeling um so i assume that he knew when my body went limp and would bring me back out so that was uh, you know the the drowning ritual if you like that went on at home who was more evil, your father, grandfather? What was your mother's role? Good question. If we're using the word evil, I think without a doubt it's the grandfather. I mean, he was what I see as a sort of recovered adult when I think about him. He was just this empty shell of darkness. His eyes were dead. 
and empty and you know as as a child that's constantly being abused I used to try and connect with eye contact and try and see if I could find anything in anyone that I could get some mercy from in a way you know mm. like a connection of some kind mm. of kindness yeah but in my grandfather's no he was just it was dead he was empty completely dead eyes completely dead eyes black eyes just just his whole energy was just black and was the abuse worse at his hands than anybody else yeah yeah he used to torture me for the sake of torturing me you know and what was your mum's role my mum was as much a part of it as anyone else so um i still to this day wonder if my father and mother were his victims too and grew up to be a part of that. I mean, I don't know. I haven't got any answers, but what I'm trying to make sense of. But my, I do remember times. There was one particular memory of my mother and my father on the farm and I was chained up in a barn where I was held captive. I was always in chains before rituals and things. And I could hear my grandfather telling my mother and father to chop up a child and my mother and father crying and pleading with him that they didn't want to do it. And he said to them, if you don't do that, I will go in there and get me and I will chop her up in front of you. And, you know, of course, that stays with me because to me that gives me some kind of something to hang on to that my parents were human at one point and maybe had some kind of not wanting to be the people they were so yeah what was the fate of your grandfather satanism <laughs> there was no there was no religion i mean faith not faith oh fate what happened to him oh sorry if we said faith <laughs> um he died i I don't know when, um, but I know he, I think he died in the 90s of lung cancer. That's as brief as I got. So I, I left the farm. My mum actually moved us away. I think I was nine or 10. So I did, wouldn't, didn't know anything of what happened to him since then. Approximately what year did you move? Um, so about 77. Does the farm have a name? Yeah. Are we able to disclose that or is it too? Probably not at the moment. Okay. Yeah. So you left the farm in 77. Did the abuse de-escalate? Um, yeah, in the way that the satanic abuse stopped because I wasn't taken to the farm again. But my mother for two or three years continued to sell me and allow what became our sort of new family, if you like, um, to abuse me. So, yeah, it all really stopped probably around 13. The people that she's selling you to, mm. what sections of society were they from? So that would be a typical scenario of that would be um, we would go to a local pub um, and there would be 
a sort of man with a white van that would give her money and take me off in the back of the van, rape me and bring her back. So to me, that would just sort of like working people, like trade people or, you know, that it was, it, they were their work vans. So had the satanic component stopped at this point when you'd left the farm and now it was just pure other types of abuse or was there still a satanic um, activity? There were still undercurrents of satanic activity, yeah. Could you expand on what those undercurrents were? Just things I used to still hear, like in conversations with my mum and these other people that we'd meet in the pubs. Um, and I just have memories of, you know, being in the back of these vans and seeing cult-like stuff, you know, whether it was pictures or, you know, it's hard to recall clearly, but, yeah, I just remember there still being, the theme was still running through a little bit. With your grandfather then, did he have satanic paraphernalia, like the satanic Bible? Um, do you remember any of the symbolism perhaps that he had at the farm? The only thing I remember very clearly was always burning crosses. So there would, for example, on a big ritual, there would be a big cross, like wooden cross in the ground that would be set alight. Um, that was a real regular thing in my life that I saw a lot of and upside down crosses burning. Um, I mean, no, I don't, I don't remember seeing anything like that. I mean, my grandfather was, um, as much as he ran the farm and when no one would dare disobey, he was very clearly also working for other people that would come to the farm. So um, he was still a bit of a lackey, really. So I don't think he was of that kind of high realm, if you like, where he would have that kind of material. Do you think the fact that he got away with it until he died, that high realm protected him and perhaps there were law enforcement or judges that were participants in the activity? Without doubt, yeah. I remember very clearly the um, the torture that went on in his flat, the child torture that went there. The local police would be present. I also remember being taken into the local police um, housing. There was like um, where police lived, it was like, masonettes nearby um i was to be taken in there to be abused did they ever as you got older try and force you to abuse people no i i think i was lucky in that respect because i think it, i don't, but i think that's purely because of the age that i managed to get away um there were times um you know in all through it all really where um for the sake again of um, video and photography and, and just for pure torture sake that we would I would have to witness him hurting another child um, and then they would do the same to me 
So it was like just terrifying two children watching what was about to happen to you. So that sort of thing. But I was never made to actually do anything to anyone else. So outside of all of this horrific abuse, what was your life like as a child? Was there any normalcy? Were you able to go to school or do anything that... I did go to school. I remember going to school. Um, I remember playing out on the green outside our masonettes. Um, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't know how long I was ever held captive at the farm. So I don't know if um, I missed a lot of school. I remember changing schools a fair bit. Um, always being the new kid, but I mean, I'm sure looking back from the outside, I would have definitely looked like that depraved child, you know, hungry, um, malnourished, scruffy, unclean, you know. So the abuse started at age three. You then think this is normal, you don't understand, you're too young. There was a point where you did start to understand that it was abnormal. Mm. How old were you at that point and what made you, what was going through your head to realise that? I actually think it really hit home for me after we left the farm and my mum and you said earlier you were about, what, nine, ten? Nine or ten, yeah. yeah. My mum literally threw us all in a car, drove us actually over to sort of a place near West London, in West London, and moved us in with a man who we had to suddenly start calling dad. She illegally changed our surnames, persuaded the headmaster at the um, local school to take us without the legal documents at the cost of he could have me. Um, I think it was from those ages that I started to try, like, piecing things together. And I remember those ages feeling horrific, you know, just so confused and um, lost and terrified all the time. And But now, see, the, when, I, when I was back there on the farm and, and, and being tortured and all this stuff, I, of course I was terrified all the time, but I knew why. So when I was now out of the scenario and my mum had set up this kind of normal life for us, um, I was still having all those feelings. So that's when I got started to feel really confused and started questioning, well, what's wrong? You know, something's wrong. Did it go through your head? when you started questioning to speak to someone outside of your family about it, maybe a teacher or a counsellor or something to try and get some help? Not even, not even for a second would that have been an option for me, knowing what I knew. What would the repercussions have been? They'd have killed me and, and not in a nice way. The abuse you describe perhaps would have left some marks on your body. Were those marks ever noticed by any outsiders? Did it come to anyone's attention? Well, if they were, no one said anything. I do wonder why didn't teachers or 
neighbours. I mean, okay, they were pretty smart with how they covered stuff up, you know, and a lot of the damage was internal. And, um, I mean, I remember being burnt and stuff like that, but they would do it in, in the hairline and in the scalp and, you know, so your hair covered it up. Um, they were really smart. But then I remember being beaten so badly, you know, and having ribs broken and I must have been bruised everywhere, you know. So clearly no one said anything if because I just can't believe it. there were as clever as they were hiding stuff. I still I can't believe in all those years I didn't show some bruises somewhere and or cuts or you know something apart from the fact that I would have been the walking zombie you know traumatized child why didn't anyone even notice that you know what did they burn you with cigarettes oh, on your scalp did you say yeah oh. the hairline did you um over the years see any doctors anything like that did you must have got sick from time to time um, I was taken to doctors. I There was definitely our local doctor. I don't know to this day whether she was in it or out of it because there were doctors, there was dentists. I was abused in a dentist chair, you know, tortured in a dentist, in a chair. dentist chair. Yeah. The whole surrounding area was involved, you know, in the hospitals. So there was the norm, what I call our normal doctor, and I know I've actually got my um, medical records now that go right back. And literally from birth, I was being diagnosed with urinary tract infections. Mm. And that's right through, runs very clearly through mm. from a very young age. Well, from birth. Um, so I don't know whether this doctor was... Um, part of it or just not flagging anything up I just don't know I don't have those answers I do remember being taken to definitely a doctor that was part of it once by my mother and I remember her having some kind of conversation with him can you check that whatever and he checked me you know gynecologically um and he did say to my mum, no, no, don't worry, it's all right. So I don't know what her fear was at that point, whether what she thought she needed to get checked out, but he was definitely, a, you know, a, a dodgy one. So you said you were abused in a dentist chair. Mm. Does that mean like they use like um, dentist instruments mm. and things on you? Mm. Yeah, that was... Was it in, in your mouth or...? Um. Well, it would be... It would end in being raped so it would just be whatever torture they did with their instruments that and that would be my mum and the dentist but also what happened in the dentist chair is I would have the gas mask and be put out oh, so actually I don't know completely what happened to me I just remember the coming round and the you know the terror it's like a reoccurring theme isn't it and suffocation was mm. something that they practiced mm. through various methods mm. okay let's go to where now you are in the 9 to 12 13 range you're realizing things are going wrong mm. are you trying to plan on breaking free 
by now I was mothering my little sister. So I was going nowhere. I was there to protect her. And I stayed there right up until I was around 20 for that reason. Um, I made sure nobody came for her. But what I did start to do around sort of 12, 13, where I was then in a secondary school and I was trying to fit in and be normal and, you know, find my group of friends. And I just started to adapt to a fake ID. And I would, you know, see something that I liked or someone told a story, I would take that story and make it my own. And so I started to build a, an identity. Um, and really from about the age of 12. So when I, you know, it was a pretty smart thing to do, you know, because I, my goal, the, the ultimate thing that I could never allow to happen was that people would see the truth. So I did whatever it took for that never to happen. So I started to build my own ID out of looking at other people that were normal. Um, but then something happened age 13 maybe 14, more 13, I think, I was gang-raped in school. In school, after all that. Good grief. Yeah, by a group of young men that had come in from outside. There was no security in our schools back then, you know. They were clearly very high on something and very aggressive, and they got hold of me and another girl, and we were gang-raped. Now, what happened was, after that, I hid in a cupboard I don't know how long for. I just hid there. Something happened to me in that cupboard. I shut down everything. And by the time I walked out of there, I had suppressed every single memory of everything that went before. So it was like clean slate. But what I had to do to maintain that was whatever it took, you know, alcohol, drugs, dysfunctional relationships, you know, and that really was from 13 to 28. Before the repression, did you blame yourself? Oh, I mean... Were you ashamed? Sh often victims get a syndrome, don't they? Shame literally is like you wear it like your clothes every single day. Absolutely. I felt shame, ashamed, embarrassed defiled like I was only ever put on this earth to please people sexually. I had this complete belief system and shame was really, you know, the the biggest and strongest component. Okay, so you've reached puberty. This horrendous gang rape situation has happened. It's caused you to repress. Mm. What kind of abuse continued after that? Was it people coming in vans like you described earlier? And It stopped because I started my period. It so stopped? It, it's at the hands of my mother. Mm. So she continued it when we left the farm around 9 or 10 till around 13. I think that's the age because very shortly after that I got my period. The second that happens, no one will touch you. You're not a child anymore. Paedophiles do not want to know. Mm. So 
it's a saving grace. So I think I was 14, I got my period and I was left alone. You said that your mum left the farm and mm. you had this new stepdad all of a sudden. Mm. What happened to your dad? My dad um, kind of popped up every now and again. Initially, after we left the farm, he did find out where we were and came with men and telling my mum that, you know, they've paid. You've got to let them in now. So it did carry on a little bit with my father bringing people over. My father had a little bit of visitation for a while um, where he continued to rape and abuse me and beat me. Um, now he's angry because we've left and it all come to me. You know, he was beating me with a belt and raping me. And, you know, so it, all his rage then, because my mum had left, came at me. Is your father still alive? Yeah. Do you feel that you want to hold him accountable? 100%. Have you tried to report anything? I did. I, I reported everything, everything to the police approximately five years ago. Bared my soul and then some. Um, took them everywhere, gave them every name. Every, I mean, it took me 18 months of doing video recordings with the police, of disclosing, and it just floored me. Um, and it was an 18-month investigation. It was um, literally about to all happen. They had warrants. They were going to go into both my parents' properties, um, where they would have definitely found material. Um, my mother was by then in her third marriage to a paedophile. Um, I gave them names of the people, my uncles that were dealing in child porn. I mean, there was no stone left unturned. I gave them everything and it took every bit of courage I could muster. Um, so yes, all about to happen. They had warrants. They were at the farm by now. And so it's now the Met Police and the Surrey Police are involved because it's London and it's the farms in Surrey. Um, very sort of top people came to my house this day and said, right, this is what's about to happen. Jeanette, it's about to kick off basically. And they wanted to talk me through the levels of protection that I would need on my home. And, you know, so if I just phoned, there would be people there straight away or were they going to put in an alarm? And so it was all quite daunting. But alongside that, I was just so happy that these people were going to be brought to justice. Um, and um, that happened that day. And I, I think it was a week at the most later when I'm now sitting there thinking, oh, my God, this is about to happen, to other people come to my house from the police and tell me we're shutting it down. And they gave me the most ridiculous reasons and walked away. Actually, what their, their, their leaving comment was, you need to draw a line under this. What were the reasons they gave you? That my grandfather didn't have a driving license. So how could he possibly drive children around from one venue to another? So they're saying that you can't drive if you don't have a driver's license. You're incapable of driving. <laughs> exactly. Like he would have cared about that. You know. I think they said something like that with the Ted Heath, one of the Ted Heath um, 
accusations he was supposedly in a car there, there was, yeah because he didn't have a license or something. Yeah. so that's a favorite then isn't it yeah, it is isn't it let's just pull that Which one I've out since discovered let's play the license card yep so apparently because he owned a bicycle as well so he didn't drive and they also said that i'd got his date of death wrong when i'd said to them right at the beginning when they asked me to do a family tree i have no idea when he died you know, and I didn't have the funds to do one of these really good genealogy things and, you know, look on those kind of sites because they were quite expensive then. Um, so that was another reason. Um, all they did was they didn't arrest my parents. They interviewed them. They brought them in for a chat and were completely taken in by them. By your natural parents, not yeah. your stepdad. So the investigation was for 18 months, did you say? Mm. Did Besides you and your parents, did they interview anybody else? My siblings, yeah. So they went to the main abusers, you know, my mum and dad. Um, I don't know what they expected, if they were going to sit there and confess. I think what I can sort of make out from gathering all of that and, you know, thinking about it, I think the police, two things. I think they, the the lower levels were just clueless on how to deal with satanic ritual abuse uh, perpetrators, if you like. I, the brainwashing and how finely tuned these people are to manipulate I'd think the lower level police had no idea and no education. And that's a massive gap for me. Um, one I'd like to fill. But also I believe there was somebody from higher up that just went, no, shut it down. And we're not going to dig up the farm. I found out at that moment as well that the farm is Crown Estate. And so I, can you explain what that means to people, Crown Estate? It means it belongs to royalty. So I think that probably played a huge factor. They won't want to have an embarrassment on their property. Okay, going back then to your teenage years, you said you stayed in the home to protect your sister. And then at what point... Oh, first of all, did you successfully protect your sister? Okay. At what point then did you leave that home? When my... Mum moved out to be with her third husband. Um, she allowed my younger sister to stay in that home and my older sister to move in with them. So now I know they're okay. And I was basically turned out of that home. My mum made us separate, me and my youngest and I ended up in a little flat on a council estate somewhere. And, and but, but that was me then on my own, able to then turn the focus on myself. You said this new husband was a paedophile. How yeah. did you know that? He was arrested. He was actually um, a caretaker in my secondary school. Um, had been arrested. I think, uh, I think there was two or three counts of boys um you know, going to the police about him abusing them. And I just knew from the way he was. Are you able to say the name of the school? 
Yes, it is. It was. I think it's um, been changed now, but it was Hounslow Manor Secondary School. Okay. Now, you're in your 20s. You've moved out. Mm. You had the situation where you went in the cupboard and it was, you were just at the point then where everything had to be Broke. repressed, otherwise you were going to explode. The repression in your new place, are you just a happy person now? No. What? How are you no. psychologically? What's your state? I'm still working on this persona at that point of trying to be like everyone else and trying to be normal, knowing that actually inside myself there's something so terribly, terribly wrong. But now at this point, by 20s, 21, I was so heavily in denial and drinking, you know, smoking cannabis, doing whatever it took basically to not let anything come alive. Um, but happy? No, absolutely not. Did you have happy a job? Did you have a boyfriend? I did have jobs. I I actually, I went to college for three years from 16 to 19. I trained because I wanted to be a makeup artist, but I trained in hair and beauty and massage and did all those sorts of things. I had boyfriends. Um, I then trained to be a fitness instructor um, through my 20s, was very successful, had a very successful career, really. Um, the persona was smashing it. When it comes to relationships then, boyfriends, with the turmoil inside you, did it cause unsettled feelings when it came to going with your boyfriends? Alcohol. That's what got you through it? Yeah, alcohol got me through that side of things. And also, I pretended... Um, to be emotionally intimate and stuff, but I wasn't. I was actually very guarded, very shielded. Um, again, it was just fake. It was the fake persona and alcohol. I've not, I'd not succeeded in any way, shape, or form to have a healthy relationship without alcohol through that stage. And then relationships built on alcohol don't sustain. No. So. That's the only way I could be close to somebody. So what decade is this when you're in your 20s? Uh, what decade is this? So this would have been 80s and 90s. So the 80s and 90s. Okay. So you've, you know, you're trying to eke out a career. You're trying to have relationships. Relationships aren't working because you're getting more down the path of substance abuse and alcohol. Usually people go down that path. They got to do more and more and more to block out that stuff because, mm. you know, mm. did you escalate into hard drug use or anything? I didn't. And I'll tell you why, because I was terrified of class A. I mean, I dabbled. And, you know, if I was out one night and somebody offered me Coke, I'd take it. Speed was a, a, my friend for a while. Um, but other than that, really... Apart from trying the odds kind of, you know, in those days it was ecstasies and raves and stuff like that. Apart from trying the odd little bit here and there of that sort of thing, I steered cleared, but clear of it because I was terrified of class A because I was given it as a child. I was injected with heroin as a child. 
So the thought of losing control in that way, you know, terrified me. And actually that probably saved me through my 20s. Under what circumstances were you injected with heroin as a child? Before rituals or before torture. And was that, um, they did that to kind of numb you to what was going to happen? I don't know with heroin. There were there were two things, and I'm only just finding out by sort of recounting the facts about how it made me feel and how it made left me feeling afterwards and stuff like that. I'm I'm learning now that I know I always suspected it was heroin because heroin was around a lot. My uncle died of a heroin overdose. You know, there were heroin addicts all around. Um so I always instinctively knew it was heroin, but I'm looking more into it at the moment. But there were two types. So there was the what you'd be injected, what I was injected with, which I think was the heroin. But there was also something I was given to drink out of a little cup before rituals. I, I'm learning a little bit about what that might have been, but I still don't know for sure. So um, and that would have a different effect. That would make me feel like I just completely and utterly out of it and and subdued and hazy and you know and that's I would be given that literally right before I would be walked out for a ritual from the barn to the ritual area did the drink have a certain taste to it yes it was bitter like off the scale bitter is the only word I could use to describe it. But um, and I would, it would take everything for me not to be sick once I'd drunk it. But uh, you know, the grandfather would be there, don't be sick, don't be sick. You know, terrifying me not to be sick. So, but yeah, it was. It would give me an instant gag reflex because of the bitterness. You mentioned you dabbled in ecstasy. It's nineties, the rave scene. It's all over the country. Presently, they've been trialing ecstasy for PTSD in America. Mm. You've got this, you know, classic story of PTSD. Mm. When you, the very first time you took ecstasy, what went through your head? I only took it twice and I only took half each time. So I didn't have the proper full on ecstasy experience. So, but what I'd say happened to me was I was able to feel all right for a little while, actually. So it took you away from everything? It did in the way that I could just get into the music and, yeah, lose myself. It was all about losing myself, you know, detaching from myself. So whether that was alcohol or cannabis, which are my main offenders, but... um yeah, I didn't really ever have, I don't, I mean, gosh, there were people around me doing two, three, four exercises in one go. You know, I was far too terrified to be that vulnerable. So did you go out and dance and attend raves? Not a lot of them. There was, you know, a lot of my friends were doing, again, going regularly. And I I, I was quite vulnerable. I, I found big crowds very scary I can't be anywhere if I don't know where the door is. You know, it's the PTSD thing stopped me from doing a lot then. Okay, so anything other um, notable happened in your 20s that I've not discovered through these questions? Well, it was um, 
at 28 that I recovered my memories. And how did so that come about? What happened was I'd been suicidal on and off for a few years. I lived in a flat that was on the eighth floor and I had this plan that if ever I needed to, I would just go off the balcony. Now, that knowing I had that escape route was my comfort. That was what kept me being able to face another day because I had a choice of like, well, come on, Jeanette, get through another day and if it's too much, you can go off the balcony. There's a fam- famous quote from Nietzsche. He says, um, thoughts of suicide got me through many a troubled night. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's perfect. That's spot on. They, it kept me alive. My suicide plan kept me alive, which is just such a contradiction, isn't it? So there was my my plan, yeah, that kept me going. And I used to have many a sort of evening where I'd just be laying on my bed and daydreaming about the plan and how lovely that would be. And um, this one day I'd had another broken relationship. In fact, I'd actually come to trust somebody, which was such a massive thing for me. And they they just broke that trust, you know, monumentally. So I was upset because of that and I just got to the end of the road and I was sat I was sat in the bath actually and I was just crying and crying and crying and I just looked up not I'm not religious but I just looked up and said okay I know there's something wrong with me I know I have buried memories I know there's something I'm not seeing I'm hiding from myself I'm going to make a deal. Either you show me now the truth so I can get better or I'm going off the balcony. So that was the plan that night. So I went to bed and woke up the next day. I opened my eyes and it's like there was a TV screen in front of me and I got my very first flashback. You just Push the microphone away from yourself. Put it back. <laughs> it's going to shift on the chair. Okay. We need it as close, close yeah. to you. Yeah. That's go. better, yeah. <laughs> okay, keep going. Um, yeah, so I woke up and got my very first flashback, like a, like a video playing in front of my face. What did you see? My uncle, the heroin addict, abusing me, sexually abusing me. Now, those flashbacks came thick and fast every day excuse me I'd say roughly for about the next five years I got every single memory back of what happened um did you tell anyone right away yeah that's when I got help yeah who did you tell I went to my doctors actually and said um I'm remembering being abused now luckily she was beautiful she was a lovely lovely person and she got me help straight away and I was with a psychotherapist um in the local hospital and obviously instantly diagnosed with PTSD and I worked through a lot of trauma with him so I was with that person for about a year um and my healing journey if you like begun from there really did the person you told suggest criminal charges? Yes. And um, 
so that that all began around 28 at the age of 30 i'd recovered a lot of memories but not about the satanic side so i'd recovered a lot of all the memories around my father's abuse and my uncle and what i did do i went to the police and got my father charged now at this point they were actually really good the police because I hadn't mentioned satanic ritual abuse at all. I wasn't even aware myself at that point. So um, they did charge my father and they arrested him and it even went to the CPS. But in those days, if he had gone to trial and been found not guilty, I would never have been able to try him again. So the CPS said to me, wait to see if any of your siblings will come forward and corroborate because at the moment it's your word against his. But if you, if one of them comes forward, we've got him banged to rights. So they were sort of gently saying, look, let's just, just hold on. But it wouldn't, wasn't pursued after the CPS. So I did. But that therapist was very honest with me. And he said, Jeanette, I can't stand up in court for you because I will be destroyed. Because in them days, it was false memory syndrome. And therapists were being accused of inciting these memories coming in. And he said, they will accuse me of it. And I will lose my career. Yeah, there was a thing called satanic panic, wasn't there? Where mm. people... Um, when memories are coming back to you then, mm. how do you know what is real and what's mm. not real? Mm. How do, you, how do you sort that out? It takes a long time. I think um, one of the hardest things for me was the sense of madness of like, what am I imagining this? Especially as at this point also I started to talk to my family and say, I'm remembering all this, you know. And I was just being shut down in, in every way, shape or form. So I was very much on my own with it. And, yeah, I had years of thinking, am I mad? You know, but I just managed to stay with it and just trust myself. What happens is with flashbacks, first of all, you can't control when they come and, and what they show you. I learned to be courageous with that and, and not um, run away from them anymore. So I gave up all the, you know, everything, the alcohol and cannabis and everything that was allowing me to escape. So I, I just become very brave and decided I'm going to do this and I did I tackled every flashback that came up and then so what happens with them once you've at, once I would for example get a flashback and allowed myself to face it head on and feel everything it brought up for me it then just becomes a memory so there's a difference between flashbacks and memories so now I just have these memories that are very clear, very seared into my brain um, that I can recount very easily because I faced them. Are you still having flashbacks? No, not really. What what happened? No, I don't get flashbacks in the sense that I've just described. What can happen for me is a memory can be triggered. So I could be walking down the road or... You know, and I'll get a smell or I could be watching something on telly and there'll be a word said 
I'll be triggered to look at a memory. A memory will come up for me, but it's not a flashback. What was the last thing that was triggered? Probably this morning, knowing I'm coming here um, and having to talk about it. What was triggered for me was the fear of um, trusting this environment and that they would then trigger memories where I was in scary environments. So, like, you conscious, you said, like, you're conscious of doors and getting out mm-hmm. of places and things like that. And I, I saw you relax a bit when you saw James because you already knew James. So perhaps that... Yeah, it made a huge difference, actually, because um, John told me last night that James would be here. That's good. So, yeah, I have my, my, my things, you know, but I would have sussed you out, like, massively. <laughs> <laughs> Before I would have even got here, you know, by watching everything and, you know. Well, I relate. You know, I had a bit of PTSD brought on myself. Didn't go anything like you went through. And I had a few little flashbacks and stuff like that. And yoga and meditation really helped me. Um, Yeah. What helped you? Did they try and put you on medication or did you go down the holistic road? They tried every which way to get me on medication. I've never taken it in my life. I've refused every single time. And yes, I massively went down the holistic road. I meditate every day. I'm a huge meditator. Um, I've had every holistic sort of treatment possible. I'm a extremely spiritual person. Um, and I just think because I managed to find my own inner peace, I've survived this the way I have. I've I always knew I needed to survive and there was a purpose. I've no, that's just been a sort of thread that's run through me. Um but on a daily basis now, you know, where I'm at, yes, meditation is huge for me. So it's good you avoided the meds and the electroshock and all mm-hmm. the other stuff that they experiment on people with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- all that just terrified me. I mean, there was you know, you say about the, you know, the electro treatments and stuff. There was um, a room at the farm where we were given electric shocks. So anything like that, that was part of torture, being electrocuted or given electric shocks or, you know, whatever the right terminology is. But that, um, you know, that's all that terrifies me. Could you describe that room and what happened? Yeah, there was. Um, so there was the barn where I was always shackled and held captive and where they would bring other children that had been abducted um, was an open-fronted barn. And then just, sorry, I'm, I can see it the way I see it. So it uh, on the end of it, on the end is a, a very small little sort of outbuilding, um, very small, and in there was a chair, a high-backed black chair. Um, and I would be sat in there, um, and the grandfather would just touch me with, uh, it was like a metal stick, and just give me electric shocks from that. Grief. Over how many years did you have the electric tro- shock torture? Probably five years. And do you ever get a tolerance to that, or is it just always equally horrific every time it happens? I am quite... I- I've grown tolerances to things for sure, but I, I think 
I don't think physically you grow a tolerance to it, but mentally I started to learn to um, separate myself from my physical body and what was happening to it. What things did you um, develop tolerances for? Yeah, how to manage pain. It's something that I learned to do in my mind. So when I was being tortured, for example, you know, the real brutal stuff of that is pain that is just off the scale that ends up making you pass out. But I just, I started to find a corner of my mind where I could go to and stay there and come back when it was safe. It's the only way I can really describe it. So but, you're separating yeah. from what's going on in the physical realm. Yeah. And just psychologically putting you in this other realm. Yeah. And these things are happening. And you're just trying to block it out and block it out and block it out. Is it easy to stay in that place? Or is the pain pulling you back into the present, to the physical? It's easy to stay in that place once you've mastered how to get there. And actually the hard thing is coming back because I wouldn't want to. It could be sort of jolted out of it maybe. Let's just say if I was laid out being tortured and I'd gone to that place, if I was suddenly sort of ripped from where I was and thrown somewhere or, you know, if something suddenly happened to me physically, it might jolt me out of there. Um, But it's being able to control my mind is something, a skill that's come from this for me. And you developed that as a kid? Yeah. So when the situation happened at the school, um, you said the strangers came in and did the raping of the two girls, including yourself. Did you draw on that to get through that experience? In the actual moments of being raped, yes. Yeah. So do you think that is now, you know, something you've got in you for the rest of your life, if there was a, was a bad situation? Um, and are you, like, really cognizant of danger? Are you, like, hyper, hyper aware and alert of things? I'm exceptionally hypervigilant. Yeah, I can scan a room very quickly. If I walk into a room where there's 20 people, I will scan every individual and pick up their energies and their vibrations and... Yeah, pick out the negative, pick out the positive, you know. Yeah, I have these skills now that come from what I went through as a child. All right, going back to your life story chronologically then, we were just in the 28 to 33 zone. You have got the counsellor now, the flashbacks, the memories. You're working through it all with the counsellor. The counsellor said they couldn't represent you in court, speaking court. Um, what happens after that five years? So going into your middle thirties. So that psychotherapist I only had for about a year. And then, um, I actually met who was then going to be, you know, turned out to be the father of my children at around age 30. Still classic dysfunctional relationship, because of course I'm not going to be at a point where I could have anything else. Um, so 
I then just started on my mission, if you like. I started having, I started meditating. I started um, holistic therapies. I found once I'd got my father charged and then that got stopped, I found a therapist then through victim support who I was with for all through the pending trial. But then I stayed with him after that and he became my therapist for years and years after and was an incredible man and actually became a father figure and somebody that I trusted, which was... So he really was my first healthy healthy relationship as a therapist, you know. Did he subscribe to a particular school of therapy? He was a psychotherapist, so I would say he was... I've got to make sure I get it right because he's he's dead now and I don't want to say something and he'll go, no, it's not that. I would say he's more of a sort of Carl Jung kind of style. Um, so he was interested in your dreams and things like that? Symbols. Very much so and um, revisiting memories to empower yourself over them, which worked for me, which is what I believe in doing because that then deems them powerless. So he was really what saved me, I'd say. So give an example of that, revisiting the memory and getting power over it. Mm. How, how does that work? So what I spent really 20 years doing um, with him and then my next therapist was I, I would, so for example, a memory would come up for me and it would just be there and I'd be feeling very scared and uncomfortable and everything go to therapy, discuss the fact that, um, you know, something's triggered this memory. And and I would then spend that session revisiting what happened, talking it through, feeling the terror, crying, you know, feeling the pain, whatever it may be, all the emotions that I had as a child but also wasn't allowed to have as a child. So I wasn't allowed to feel my rage. I wasn't allowed to um, express my broken heart. And my heartache, I wasn't allowed to, you know, acknowledge any of that. It was just all terror. So looking back into memories, reliving them, I would allow myself to have all those feelings that I should have had at the time. But having the courage to face that memory in detail and talk it through in absolute detail, because what I needed to do was make sure there was nothing left that I was scared of. I didn't want there to be anything inside of me that I was too scared to look at. So every time I did it and chipped away and chipped away, that then memory, that particular one that I'd look at that day, had no power over me anymore. I took back the power. And that memory was powerless. So if that was memory that I'd just done in therapy was triggered two weeks down the line by something, it wouldn't, it would be fine because I wouldn't be frightened of it anymore. That's fascinating. It's great that you empowered yourself that way. At the same time as you were empowering yourself, some of your abusers were still out there and alive. Did that taint what you were doing? Was there an ever present threat? There's always been an ever present threat, and it's always been tainted with the fact that there's still no justice for me or the others. 
all the other children. And they knew you were approaching law enforcement, so you were a threat. Yeah. So then the threat back is escalated as you try to get your justice? Yep. I think um, my mother tried to stick every label of mental health issues on me she possibly could. She would have had me sectioned if she could have got away with that. Um, but I just was stronger every time. So she didn't win. And and I'm not, to me, the family, they're not a threat to me anymore. You know. Going back to your story, you said you met the future father of your kids. Mm. But was that a relationship based on alcohol and, or were you sorting yourself out at that point? I'd really started sorting myself out at that point. I was still drinking, but in the kind of just weekends when you're out at a party or clubbing or stuff, but I'd really started on my journey by now. What I wasn't able to do was really, truly trust and feel safe in a relationship. So they're sort of intimate, you know, um, happiness that should come from a relationship. I still wasn't able to connect with at all. But again, you know, I had a great persona, so you wouldn't have known that really. Um, but he was, he had a drinking issue. How did you meet him? A health club that I worked at. <laughs> yeah. So he was a fitness person yeah, as well was, as a He drinker. was a fitness person. I was beyond fit person, you know. So again, it's personas, isn't it? But actually, you know, what was brewing underneath. So I just was on a mission from then on in, really. Um, we were together just over 10 years. I had two children. Absolute godsend. I don't know how that happened, but, you know, it did. Thank goodness. Um, we separated. But really, outside of that, you know, another broken relationship, um, because I wasn't able to be in a healthy relationship or attract somebody that could be in a healthy relationship, because it works both ways, um, I just battened down the hatches and worked on fixing myself. Was it his issues, your issues, or a combination of that derailed the relationship? I would say I would like to be able, I, I like to take ownership. So I would definitely say a combination of both. But I think the ultimate breaking point was I started to choose enlightenment if you like and growth and spiritual awareness and you know the healing and, and he wanted to stay on the same path so we went like that and then did you move out and take the kids we were in spain it was all breaking down we'd moved to spain and um why had you decided to move to spain to get away from my family really fresh start had a little girl, 14 months old, and we just said, let's give her that life. We'd both had successful careers. We had some money that we could start up with, and we went. He wanted to set up his own business, which just went very badly wrong because he was an alcoholic by then and, you know, wasn't able. Did he know everything? Yeah. Mostly everything. 
because since I've split up with him, I had the courage then, because I've been on my own now for 12 years. So I then had the courage to really finally tune what happened to me and work it all out and, you know, put a name to it. I didn't even know that satanic ritual abuse was a name. It was, you know, a friend of mine actually said, Jeanette, I think this is what you went through. So I started to really sort of learn more and finally tune everything. So, um, so you'd empowered yourself over the situation, married and had kids. Things didn't are, marry, but yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. things things are going as good as they've gone in your yeah. life. Yeah. Yes. The threat was ever present. You moved mm-hmm. overseas mm-hmm. to get that reduced. Mm-hmm. When did you come back? And then did that threat resurrect because you're back in the country now? I came back um, 2008, Christmas. We split up, so I was very quickly on my own. Two children. He'd left us penniless, homeless almost. I was nearly homeless twice. So I had to really start, you know, stepping up in a big way. And I did. Um, I had another child by then. I had my son as well. Um and yes, the thought of being back in the UK and my family being able to find me was not a good feeling. And did they find you? One of my sisters got in touch for a short period of time, but then disappeared again. Um, but my mother's not dead, come near me. So I think I'm more of a threat to her now than she is to me, if I'm honest. So you don't, as they've got older, the threat's reduced. They're less able to do stuff. From my immediate family. I wouldn't ever turn my, I wouldn't, you know, turn my back if they were behind me. Let's put it that way. I'm not um, completely comfortable, but I don't lay awake worrying about them at night. I think there's more they would probably lay awake worrying about me now. So you've described an SRA network of abuse. Are you worried about the network coming after you? Well, I think I'd be silly to say no to that. But I do trust that what I'm doing is the right thing and what's meant to be will be. So I won't live in the fear of that. I will not live in my life in fear. They will not allow, I will not let them make that happen for me anymore. You don't necessarily have to detail the answer uh, to this question because we don't want to give people um, a heads up. But do you have precautions in place to protect you? No. Well, with you doing these interviews, do you think that precautions, uh, you should explore that option? I'm exploring in a sense, but I think because of this is only the second interview that I've done, I'm not naming names but outside of my family. And actually, I don't intend to because there's nothing for me to gain. For me, it's about the bigger picture. My purpose is to encourage other survivors of satanic ritual abuse to find the courage to recover. Because for me, that's the ultimate justice. Of course, I would like justice in its actual sense. But... I'm not here to bring down individuals. I could name names. I have no intention of doing that. 
because for what gain? Most of these people are dead anyway. The truth's coming out all over the place about them. I don't need to be a part of that. Part of that. I'm here more and telling my story because I want people to be able to look at me and say, if she can survive that and be who I am today, then I can do that too. You know, and I've been working in my own little way in a less um, uh, public way um, doing that for 20 years, you know, helping people. I've, I've volunteered for quite some time. For example, I was going into prisons and sitting with prisoners in rehab and talking about what happened to me and sharing, you know, with 20, 30 men and allowing them to be able to have that space to say, I was abused too. And to get inspiration from, you know, what it can bring you if you can learn to talk about your abuse without using. You know, so I've been doing all my own sort of thing anyway for quite some time. My reason to go public is because I want to help people now on a bigger scale. I want to be that example. I want to be that beacon. And I commend you for that, um, especially going in prisons because people, a lot of the public just don't care about people in prison. Mm. And I, I noticed that behind many crimes are just these tragic stories of abuse, childhood yeah. abuse and a lot of the, the prison population. I don't think I met one prisoner in men or women's prisons that um, weren't abused as a child. And then they get on drugs and, cr mm. and into crimes and they can't hold these people accountable because they're not taken seriously in mm. court. It's, it's, so I have, it's, I have it's utmost terrible. respect for anybody that's even still alive after being abused. So sharing your story, has that helped you heal? Yeah, starting to be able to talk openly over the years, um, even though just with close friends, you know, and obviously now I'm taking it to a different level. It's 100% helped me to heal. Breaking the silence that is instilled in a child when they're abused is the only way to heal. Everything else can branch out from there, but you have to break that silence. You said 100%. Do you feel fully recovered or are you still healing? The way I describe it is I have healed my wounds, like big gaping wounds, but what I live with are my scars, and my scars can get poked. You know, so but I have a lot of um, awareness. I'm very self-aware of what can trigger me and what can't. I'm very self-aware of my own self-care. You know, I have all those things now that I never was allowed to develop as a child. You know, I have self-worth. I have my dignity. I have my self-respect. You know, I have self-love um, and inner peace. And they can't take that from me because I gave it to myself. As you've told your story, I imagine that people are reaching out to you. Is that giving you a broader perspective on how extensive SRA is? Yeah, it really is. And it's not a nice feeling, but it it is. It's making me realise that satanic ritual abuse is even more rife than I knew. And what do you base that on? What, that information? What information has been coming forward to you to make you draw that conclusion? Well, I'm hearing from people that have experienced the same thing. 
approximately how many people have you heard from? Hundreds. Hundreds? And over what time period? I mean, the hundreds of people have contacted me since my last interview, and there is a large chunk of them that have experienced satanic ritual abuse in one form or another. Um, what did you ask me? Like how extensive it is, and you're saying there's hundreds of people. Are they all over the world? Yes. And I knew about Australia, New Zealand, America, Holland, I think Belgium. You know, I knew about certain countries where it was huge and actually have a lot of links with England as well. How helpful are the police to these people? They're not helpful, not for satanic ritual abuse. They will not acknowledge it. Why do you believe that is? I believe that because very high up people are involved in it and they are controlling the police in what they allow to be exposed. Have you had any communication with Wilfred Wong on this yeah. subject? I've been speaking a lot to Wilfred and he's been helping me learn a lot, which is great. And I'm actually meeting him next week. So I'm really looking forward to that. Good Fan old chat with Wilfred. Fantastic. Out of the hundreds of people who've contacted you, what has, has anything shocked you? Has there been anything you know, completely off the scale? I've yet to hear a story worse than mine. And again... I've told you quite a lot today, but it's great, you know, it's, it's it's not nearly covered everything. But so I've yet to hear a story more shocking than mine, but it still all shocks me in a way. I think for me, what is the worst thing to bear is the fact that it's still going on today, you know, and I'm meeting people especially in Surrey villages. I think it's rife in Surrey mm. and the villages that um, their children are experiencing this right here and now. That That's what really keeps me awake at night. You said there's some parts of your story that we've not touched on today. Which ones are those? I think there's just more detail, you know, about my experiences and um, different things that went on at the farm and, yeah, the whole sort of the satanic ritual abuse and everything that is under that umbrella is a lot of very awful things. You've detailed quite a lot today, awful mm. things. Which awful things have we not detailed that we could explore? Um, I think the other thing that um, needs to be made aware of satanic ritual abuse are women that are used to breed babies. So I'll give you a quick example. When I was on the farm, I remember one particular day, there was a little sort of outhouse um, and there was occasions when I was just left to roam around, um, you know, pretty feral. And um, I went by the outhouse and I could hear crying and, and someone sort of help, help, like a very sort of weak little voice. And I went in and there were two women in there. I mean, I was very little, so to me they were grown-up women. Um, chained up and heavily pregnant and pleading with me, begging me, please, please, please get the keys because my grandfather had a huge big bunch of keys 
go and get the keys, go and get the keys, you know, help us escape. And, and, and I remember their, their language of, you know, we've got babies in our tummies and we need to get away. They're going to kill our babies. I knew what was going to happen. Um, and I couldn't get the keys because how could I possibly get the keys? And I remember walking away from there knowing I can't do anything and feeling devastated and guilty because I couldn't save the babies or the ladies in the, the, the well, it was like a dog kennel thing, really. Um, and I, I just remember walking away because that's all I could do. And those babies were cut out of those women and used for sacrifice and those women were left to die. <sighs> Any other details we've not gone over? Any other stories from the farm? Um... I mean, I've, yeah, I've told you about the meat hooks. There was there was another barn, which was what I called the um, the posh barn. It was um, bigger. It was on two stories, and the important people that used to come to the farm to visit that was their barn. So when they were coming, there would be five or six of us in there waiting for them, um, and that would be abuse of horrific sorts that would go on and these are the people that my grandfather answered to he was the they were the only times I ever saw him doing what other people would tell him to do and um yeah so the there was that barn I told you about the underground tunnels there was a little boy called Ben that I mentioned in um my other interview with John Wedger that um died in my arms in the what, underground tunnel. What was Ben's tunnel. story? So Ben was about three years old. He was an abductee. When he was brought to the farm, he was thrown in the um, the barn where I was chained up at the time and just thrown next to me. So I sort of always cuddled the little ones, you know. I was only little myself, but I was bigger than them, you know. So I cuddled him and um, calmed him down. We were both taken off at some point for different rituals and different abuse. I was in the underground tunnel when I came round from whatever drugs were given to me um, by the sound of the keys and Ben was thrown in the cell with me. Um, I knew just by looking at him it was over for him, you know, that he'd obviously just had his life turned inside out, literally, up, you know. It was horrific what they'd done to him. Again, I cuddled him. Now, I was sort of coming in and out of consciousness, I think, from drugs. And it was very cold down there anyway. But I remember waking up and I was freezing cold and Ben was in my arms and I realised I was so cold because he died mm. and his body was cold. So he died in my arms. So getting justice for Ben because I know his body's around there somewhere um, is, you know, it's just, it's all very important to me. People watching this video are probably going to want to go out there and start digging. Yeah, I've had many offers. Yeah. But we're going to try and do it the right way first. Through the court system. Yeah. Which is blocking you. Yeah. So some people will say then that perhaps because there's no physical evidence been found at the farm yet, how do we know you're telling the truth? Perhaps mm. your memories 
<laughs> you believe them, but perhaps they've just gone too far. Mm. What do you say to those people watching this video? It's a hard one, that, because obviously that's what I've been accused of so much in my life. Um, what can I say to people? I think just ask yourself, why on earth would I be putting myself through this? You know, and do I present as somebody that is mentally unstable or mentally ill? You know, I'm now in an exceptionally healthy place in my life. You know, I'm a mother of two amazing, healthy teenagers. Um, there is nothing whatsoever for me to gain from making this up or exaggerating you know i've when i say i have been preparing and recovering for 25 years i've literally been doing this for 25 years since the age of 28 to be able to do this and and to speak in this way and to help people in this way so i believe there will always be people that will doubt these horrific things that i'm telling people but I accept that people that will doubt it's because they can't cope with the truth and they don't want to cope with the truth. And there will always be people like that in the world that can't bring themselves out of their comfort zones to be able to join in this fight because it is a fight. Fighting against, fighting for justice for satanic ritual abuse is something everybody needs to be a part of. And we know these things happen because look at Fred West, look mm. at the Moors murders. Mm. And I commend you for being on this mission to help people, Jeanette. Thank you. People watching this video are going to want to reach out to you and mm -hmm. we're going to put all the links in the description box below it. Yeah. What, do you want to just tell the audience what is your preferred method of people getting a hold of you and what platforms you are presently on? So I have a page on Facebook supporting SRA survivors. I'm reachable on there, but through invitation. So you'd have to be friended on Facebook and then you'll get an invitation through that, obvious reasons. Um, I think ideally it's better that people contact me initially by email. So I'm happy to have my email address in the link there. Okay, so there you have it. A harrowing and moving story and a brilliant mission that Jeanette is on now. So if you want to reach out to her, please go down in the description box and um, click over to the Facebook page or send Jeanette an email. And we would appreciate you putting your thoughts on this podcast in the comments section below this video. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. And if you've not subscribed yet, subscription logos in the bottom right-hand corner. And huge thank you to all the people who've donated so that we can produce these podcasts out of the studio with our cameraman and our sound engineer, James and Joe, um, getting you everything at such a good quality. So, next Monday night, 6pm, will be the next premiere. Thank you for watching. Cheers from London. Take care. Oh, I didn't give you a hug yet. Oh, well. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.